Welcome to a special message from the Hollyview Church Retreat. We gather every Sunday morning at 1030 as a worshiping community of Jesus followers on mission to see God glorified in our lives, our cities, and around the world. At Hollyview, the Bible serves as our foundation and guide for both life and ministry. It tells the story of God and the story of us. We believe the better we know the themes and flow of the biblical story, the better we will be able to find our place in God's grand storyline. Thank you for joining us. And now here is the first message from the retreat. This is session one, The Great Awakening with guest speaker Eric Wood. We are going back in time this weekend. And that's great because I love time travel. I love the idea of hopping in machine and going back in time. It's just so cool. Uh, Harry Potter 3, The Prisoner of Azkaban, is my favorite in the series right? Because of the time turner. I'm getting some nods here because there's time travel there. Uh, Back to the Future 2 was amazing. They should have made another one, right? I just imagined that one with the train, didn't I? Because it was was not good. I love time travel so much that I joined a time travel club. Unfortunately, our first meeting has been postponed until last week. So um, I, I was going to tell a joke about time travel, but nobody laughed. Oh, cross that one out. <clears throat> um, no, seriously, I used to be really into time travel, and maybe I was even addicted, but that's all in the past. One more, one more, one more. <clears throat> the, the barman says, we don't serve time travelers in here. A time traveler walks into a bar. (laughs) Okay. Our goal this weekend is to get to Pentecost by Sunday. And Sunday just so happens to be Pentecost. The way I approach this, this going back in time over the history of the church, is imagine all of church history is a mountain range. And here we are in 2022, We have a slide here. Here we are in 2022. If we look back to the cross, across this mountain range, there are two significant peaks that stand out above the rest and that affect us here in America, in Silverton, Oregon, right now, today. Tonight, we'll look at the Great Awakening. And then tomorrow, uh, the Great Awakening Spiritual revival in the American colonies in the mid-1700s. And then tomorrow we'll explore the Protestant Reformation, which was kicked off in 1517 by Martin Luther. Our goal for the weekend is to get back to the first church, examine how things have gone wrong and right, and get back to how it was at the beginning, which is from Acts chapter 2, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. 
And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So that's where we're headed. But first, why study church history? Why take the time to go back in time? Those are great questions. Good job. Knowing church history helps us. I have five reasons here. Number one, knowing church history helps us appreciate the sovereignty of God. The church has survived these 2,000 years because God is in control. He sees to her growth and flourishment through times of hardship and persecution. God builds his church. God sustains his church. Number two, knowing church history helps us see how people who love Jesus follow him. Through thick and thin, through good times and bad, we can learn from their successes and their mistakes. Number three, knowing church history helps us avoid chronological snobbery. Did you know we want to avoid chronological snobbery? This isn't my idea. This comes from C.S. Lewis. When he came to Saving Faith, um, he writes that he had to overcome his chronological snobbery, which he describes as the uncritical acceptance of the intellectual climate common to our own age and the assumption that whatever has gone out of date is on that account discredited. So what he's saying is, new is not always better. New is not always better. Old ideas can still help us know and understand God and his church. C.S. Lewis suggests we should let the breezes of the centuries blow through our minds. G.K. Chesterton is a writer and theologian who was a little bit older than old Clive Staples, and he helped C.S. Lewis in his conversion and in his walk with the Lord. And Chesterton had this to say about looking back and learning from history. Real development is not leaving things behind as on a road, but drawing life from them as from a root. We want to avoid chronological snobbery. We want to look back and let the breezes of the centuries blow through our minds. Number four, knowing church history helps us live courageous Christian lives today. Looking back, Seeing God's providence in his church helps us face the world boldly, courageously. Jesus himself said, the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. When you consider all that the church has been through, you can courageously face whatever the church is facing next. And finally, knowing church history helps us remember Remembering is vital to the Christian life. We've got to remember we were dead in our sins in which we used to walk. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, made us alive together with Christ. Remembering is vital. Psalm 143 Verse 5 says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. Remembering is vital, and so is telling the next generation. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Remembering is vital to the Christian life. So, five reasons 
to study church history, why this is worth our time. So to understand the Great Awakening, we need to back up a little bit more and understand early colonial America. All right, all you history students? The Pilgrims, okay, Thanksgiving, remember? The Pilgrims came across from England uh, about 1620, and some of them were Puritans. They believed the Church of England was corrupt, and they desired to get back to the basics of Christianity and that Acts 2 church. Uh, soon after that, more Puritans came over from England, and they founded a colony in Massachusetts. And the Quakers, another group of pious believers who saw the corruption of the Church of England, they immigrated in, and they founded Pennsylvania. Uh, some Roman Catholics immigrated from Europe, and they founded Maryland in the 1630s. Uh, some Anglicans that still belong to the Church of England and still bow to the king, they settled mostly in Virginia. So colonial America is this melting pot of religions and denominations. These early pilgrims, particularly those Puritans, were fervent in their faith and belief in God. But over the course of the next hundred years, their children and their grandchildren would fall away. By the early 1700s, they began to grow wealth, and they became increasingly more comfortable with their colonial life. They didn't need God anymore. They had everything they needed. Their bellies were full. Their bank accounts were full. Who needs God in that situation? Church membership began to drop, and so to increase church attendance, the halfway covenant was invented. And that's like saying the square circle was invented because that's impossible. A covenant is an agreement which brings about a relationship between two parties, most often God and his people. This halfway covenant allowed you to be a member of the church without publicly professing your, uh, your faith in Jesus. You could belong to the social club known as church. So churches in those days were largely attended by people who lacked a personal relationship with Jesus. You even had many pastors who had become pastors without even being believers. They're leading their flocks without even knowing their shepherd. The church was stale and stagnant. And then suddenly, the Spirit of God awoke as though from an intense slumber and began to touch the population of the colonies. People from all walks of life, from poor farmers to rich merchants, began experiencing renewal and rebirth. And this is the great awakening. Enter my hero, Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards is the greatest American theologian. You should think of him when you think of the all-time great theologians, Luther and Calvin and Augustine and Edwards. And am I the only one that has a Mount Rushmore of favorite theologians? Maybe, maybe it's just me. Edwards was a believing pastor. He believed, he was a believing pastor in Northampton, Northampton, Massachusetts. He rejected the idea of this halfway covenant. He sensed the lack of personal conversion to Christ among his people. In 1734, he preached, uh, he preached a series of sermons 
on justification by faith alone. And his God-saturated, God-focused, God-entranced, God-glorifying ministry sparked a flame of revival in his community. Many people were saved. Multitudes of souls were rescued from hell in this revival. And Edwards wrote about it in a letter that he titled, A Faithful Narrative of the Surprising Work of God in the Conversion of Many Hundred Souls in Northampton. And you can read it today. That letter made its way over to England, where the great hymn writer Isaac Watts published it. You've sung hymns written by Isaac Watts, I guarantee. When I survey the wondrous cross, joy to the world. Edwards was now well-known on both sides of the Atlantic. And then, in 1741, a pastor in nearby Enfield, Connecticut, invited Edwards to preach to his congregation. And the pastor in Enfield desired a revival like the one in Northampton. Edwards preached his most famous sermon, and arguably the most famous sermon ever preached in America. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Did any of you study this sermon in school? I think it's part of curriculum somewhere. Oh, Gina did. Okay. Very good. Uh, <clears throat> it's full of powerful imagery, like we're a spider held over the fiery pit of hell by God's hand. And it's God's good pleasure to hold us and not to drop us in. Or this passage, the bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string and justice bends the arrow at your heart and strains the bow. And it is nothing but the mere pleasure of God and that of an angry God without any promise or obligation at all that keeps the arrow one moment from being made drunk with your blood. Ooh. Doom and gloom and fire and brimstone, but also boundless hope. Hit this. And now you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day when Christ has thrown the door of mercy wide open and stands in calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners. A day wherein many are flocking to him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from east, west, north, and south. Many that were very lately in the same miserable condition that you are in are now in a happy state with their hearts filled with love to him who has loved them and washed them from their sins in his own blood and rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. People wept and cried out, what must I do to be saved? They clung to their pews, fearing they were about to fall into fiery judgment. Revival had begun in the colonies. The spirit of God was on the move. Enter George Whitfield. Now, George Whitfield was cross-eyed, okay? Can you all see that? So every picture you find, we've got another one. Every picture you find, it's a little bit distracting, but there is one from, there we go. So from that angle, 
we got him. Whitfield was an itinerant preacher in England, uh, meaning he didn't have his own congregation, but he traveled around and he preached. And in 1739, he came to America on a preaching tour. As he toured the colonies, he sensed the need for revival. I am verily persuaded, he wrote. The generality of preachers talk of an unknown, unfelt Christ. And the reason why congregations have been so dead is because dead men preach to them. Whitfield was a gifted orator. He was able to be heard in all corners of the largest room and uh, in, in the fields, in the forests, across rivers. He was such a great communicator that a famous British actor at the time named David Garrett, Garrick once said, I would give a hundred guineas if I could say, oh, like Mr. Whitfield. His popularity grew to the point that there were no rooms that could accommodate the crowds that came out to hear him. He preached in farmers' fields and along rivers. His last sermon in America was in Boston, where 23,000 people showed up to hear him preach. At that time, that was the largest gathering ever in the colonies. One of Whitfield's most famous sermons is entitled, Marks of a True Conversion. And the text is Matthew 18, 3, where Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. My favorite section of, of this sermon comes towards the end in my Whitfield voice. Are ye God's children? Are ye converted and become like little children? Then deal with God as your little children do with you. As soon as ever they want anything, or if anybody hurt them, do they not directly run to their parent? Well, are ye God's children? Doth the devil trouble you? Doth the world trouble you? Go tell your father of it. Go directly and complain to God. Perhaps you may say, I cannot utter fine words, but do any of you expect fine words from your children? If they come crying and can speak but half words, do not your hearts yearn over them? And has not God unspeakably more pity to you? Revival took hold, and people were awakened to the gospel by the thousands. An estimated 300,000 people lived in the colonies at the time, and upwards of 50,000 new members were added to the church. People were born again by the thousands. Princeton, Brown, Rutgers, and Dartmouth universities were established as a direct result of the Great Awakening. Religion was reinvigorated in America at a time when it was steadily declining. What can we take from this? We should beg God for revival. First, for us personally. Revival starts personally. Beg God to awaken us to his ways, that he would enable us to follow hard after him 
and that the gospel would overflow from us to those around us. Beg God to not let us grow comfortable. Beg God to not let us forget him and our need for him. And second, beg God for revival publicly, for us, corporately. We should beg God for revival in our churches today, that people would take personal responsibility for their sin and come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, that our churches would grow from unbelievers joining and being born again, that new churches would be planted and the gospel would go forth. Beg God for revival personally and publicly. Let's go to the Bible now and see an example of a great awakening. 2 Kings 22, the kingdom of Israel was split. Israel in the north, Judah in the south. One of Judah's kings, Josiah, wanted to repair the temple, uh, the house of the Lord, which had fallen into disrepair due to the neglect of the kings before him. Josiah sends his secretary up to the high priest, uh, who was Hilkiah at the time, to tell him, use the offerings to rebuild the temple. Hilkiah says, okay, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. Oh, uh, and also, I found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. That's 2 Kings 22, verse 8. Judah had slid so far, had neglected God and his ways, to the point that the book of the law was lost for a while. They lost the Bible. The secretary returns to the king, and it's really strange. He updates him on the money and the temple and the workmen. He just goes through this whole list. And then after all that's out of the way, he says, uh, and Hilkiah has given me a book. And then he reads it to the king. And that is verses 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. Josiah is grieved by what he hears. He and his people have neglected God and his ways. They have fallen asleep. The king was supposed to have his own personal copy of the book of the law. They forgot about that a long time ago. The priest was supposed to have much of it memorized so he could encourage and edify the people. It wasn't being done. Now the book was found. The word was read and the word spread. Chapter 23 tells us of Judah's great awakening. Then the king sent and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him and the king went up to the house of the Lord and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. All the people joined in. They committed to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all their heart and all their soul. The people of Judah were awakened greatly by the word of God. May the word of God awaken in us a heart for the lost and a passion for the glory of God. May we see great revival in our day. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for these men who were 
committed to your word and thank you that by it um, people in the past were awakened and we are awakened today. Help us to know it and love it and stick close to it. And, uh, and we thank you most of all for Jesus. That while we were dead, you sent Jesus to die on the cross to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from our unrighteousness. We thank you that he didn't stay dead, that he rose so we don't have to fear death, so we know we will live forever. We thank you that he ascended, and we thank you that he is coming back. And Jesus, would you come quickly? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now here is the second message from the retreat. This is The Reformation with guest speaker Eric Wood. All right. Good morning. Again, I'm Eric. I like Thanksgiving and fall and going by boat. Oh, wait, that was last night, right? Deja vu, huh? Remember, we're going back in time. Uh, I forgot to tell you, last night, my, my wife has invented a device to bring back herbs from the future. She calls it her time machine. Time machine. Come on now. Come on. <clears throat> I, I, I heard a really good time travel joke tomorrow. You put the punchline first. So would you guys like to learn how to write a time travel joke? Man, where's my pen? What do we want? A time machine. When do we want it? It doesn't matter. There we go. Our, okay. We're done with that. Our goal remains to get back to the first church, to get back to Pentecost. We want to examine how things have gone wrong and how they've gone right and get back to how it was at the beginning, which, to remind you, is from Acts chapter 2. PowerPoint. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Last night we looked at the Great Awakening, the 1700s in colonial America, and this morning we'll look at the church at the time of the Protestant Reformation, and specifically the very beginning of the Reformation in 1517. Uh, I, I just learned this, studying this, I grew up a Protestant, I grew up, I've been believing 30 plus years, I never knew this word came from a group of people protesting the Catholic Church. They wanted to reform the Catholic Church it didn't work out that way. The church excommunicated them, and so the reformers all started their own church. And so we have 
Lutherans and Baptists and Methodists and Anabaptists and on and on and on and on. A quick refresher from last night, why we study church history to appreciate the sovereignty of God, to see how people who love Jesus follow him, to avoid chronological snobbery. Let the breezes of the centuries blow through your mind. To live courageous Christian lives today and to remember, 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 remember. I love that song we sang, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. That second verse, Here I raise my Ebenezer. The children of Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years and they are finally on the threshold of the promised land, but the mighty Jordan River is in the way. God parts the river and they walk across on dry land and they're commanded, one person from each tribe, take a stone from the middle of the river and stack it up. Raise an Ebenezer so that you can look back and remember what God has done for you. So you can tell your children, look what God did for us. He provided for us. Remembering is vital to the Christian life. And uh, the Reformation particularly is worth our time because we are still reaping the benefits. Most importantly, the Reformation returned the, tr- the church to its true tr- treasure. Whew. Let's try that again. Time machine. The Reformation returned the church to its true treasure, the gospel. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We won't take the time to get into these other details, but here are three things that we enjoy today thanks to the Reformation. All the churches that are going to meet tomorrow morning on the Lord's Day, they're going to enjoy these three things thanks to the Reformers. The Reformers brought back the sermon. Praise God. I love to preach. So I'm so thankful that the Reformers brought this back. The church at that time was about celebrating the Mass. So the liturgy, the sacraments, the creeds, all that pomp and circumstance. The Reformers returned the sermon to the center of the church service. They exalted scripture back to its proper place. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, right? Acts chapter 2. Second, the singing. Congregations didn't sing in the centuries leading up to the Reformation. The Reformers restored congregational singing to the church. They wrote songs like, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. If you love singing in church, and I love singing in church, then you should thank God for the Reformers. And third, the sanctity of all work. The Reformers revolutionized daily life outside the church. They gave new meaning and importance to work. They established the doctrine of work and the various roles in the house, spouses and parents and children. The reformers help us understand that all of life is to be lived to God's glory. All of life is an opportunity to live to God's glory. You don't have to be clergy. You don't have to be a monk or a priest or a nun or a pope like you needed to be back then in order to be holy. All of life is lived to God's glory. So the first 1,500 years of the church in Europe look really interesting on a timeline. That's the history of the church. Now, if this was AP world history, we would have to talk about 
You know, in, in 1054, there's the Great Schism and the Eastern Orthodox Church breaks off from the Roman Catholic Church. But this isn't AP World History, so we're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the, the Roman Catholic Church for the first 1,500 years is just unity. It's one church. It's led by the many popes. But if you look at the timeline of the church since 1517, it, it branches off like this crazy tree. Every denomination traces its roots to some time after 1517. You have Luther's, Lutherans, you have Anabaptists, you have Baptists, you have Methodists. There should be a line coming up for Anglicans, but I'm not good at PowerPoint, so just imagine that. Just All of these denominations spring forth from this Protestant Reformation. The unity of the church for that first 1,500 years is admirable. It's even desirable. So that's one good thing I have to say about the popes, right? They, they did a good job maintaining the unity of the church. But 1,500 years is a long time, and that's enough time for error and heresy to creep in without most people even knowing it or realizing it. Imagine you have this big, beautiful cathedral, and over the course of 1,500 years, you've made various modifications and additions, and eventually you just leave all the scaffolding up, right? Because you have to keep climbing up to get to all the points. At some point, if you step back and look, all of a sudden your beautiful cathedral is hidden behind all this scaffolding. The reformers come along and tear the scaffolding down so that we can see the beautiful cathedral again. The main error, uh, the main heresy in the medieval church is their belief about salvation. The early church didn't have an official proclamation on the doctrine of salvation. There wasn't a, a creed that laid it out. This is what we believe. So we've had to piece it together by how they taught and uh, the actions that they took to, tr- to see how they truly believed. And it went like this. Here's the medieval view of salvation. You're born. Yeah, starts at birth. Hopefully you're born into the church because then on the eighth day, you're taken to the church, and you're baptized. And in that baptism, they believed in regeneration. You're baptized, you're washed clean, and then you enter in the state of grace. And so at eight days old, when you're baptized, when you're washed clean, you die then, you go straight to heaven because you're in the state of grace. The problem is we live and we sin. And so when you sin, you must confess to a priest. And the priest would would absolve you of your confessed sin, meaning he would declare you're free of the blame or the guilt or the responsibility of that sin as long as you pay the additional penalty, which is called penance. After you confess, you might have to pray many times a day, for many days, or you might have to say 50 Hail Marys or the Our Fathers. Um, You've sinned and you have to pay the extra penalty for your sin. I hope there's alarm bells going off in your mind. And if there are, we thank the reformers for that, okay? Uh, You pay the extra penalty so that you can re-enter the state of grace, 
and then you start the cycle over again, and then you sin, and then you confess, and then you pay penance, and then you're in the state of grace, and then you sin, and then you confess. Just <sighs> exhausting, right? What a cycle. It started like that, but then they added, uh, they added something later that's called indulgence. Oh, I'm sorry. You die, right? If you haven't paid all your penance, you go to purgatory until your balance sheet can balance either by the time that you've spent there or by the, the pious acts and the prayers of the people who are still living. Finally, your balance sheet balances and whew, then you reach heaven, paradise, after all that. Okay, then they add indulgence. You can reduce the penalty of your sins. You can reduce the penance that you owe for a fee, for, for money. You pay a fee, you get a certificate of indulgence. And by the 1500s, the, the Pope had leveraged this practice to pay for the remodel of St. Oh, you jumped the gun, man. Oh! <laughs> Time machine. Um, Pope Leo X wanted to remodel St. Peter's Basilica, so he sold indulgence franchises. You could be a franchisee. You sell these indulgences. Uh, The franchisee could keep half of what he raised by selling the indulgences, as long as you send the other half to Rome for Pope Leo's construction project. He had an archbishop, Albrecht of Mainz. He came up with the idea of complete remission of sins. He, he was the top seller for Pope Leo. If you could be completely forgiven of sins with just three easy payments of $99.99, sign up now! Uh, yeah, he was Pope Leo's top earner, and Albrecht just happened to be archbishop over a group of churches and monasteries that included a monk named Martin Luther. What do we need to know about Martin Luther? Martin Luther hated his sin. He knew himself well, but he knew his God better, and he knew he fell short. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Luther knew this. He would spend hours in confession, reviewing the Ten Commandments, reviewing the seven deadly sins, reviewing the Sermon on the Mount, and he would acknowledge how he didn't measure up. He didn't have a single besetting sin weighing him down. His overall corruption was his main issue. Luther's reason for confession was his deathly fear of God's judgment. He lived in daily fear of the immediate judgment of God on his life. He said on one occasion, if I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. He became more distressed with the enormity of his own sin and his inability to satisfy a righteous God. He wrote in his journal, although I was a holy and irreproachable monk, my conscience was full of trouble and anguish. I could not bear the words, justice of God. I loved not the just and holy God who punishes sinners. 
I was filled with secret rage against him and hated him because not satisfied with terrifying his miserable creatures already lost by original sin with his law and the miseries of life, he still further increased our torment by the gospel. But when, by the Spirit of God, I comprehended these words. Pause for a second. He was reading Romans. And Romans 1.17 says, The just shall live by faith. He's reading that, and he stops. I comprehended these words, that the just shall live by faith. When I learned how the sinner's justification proceeds from the pure mercy of the Lord, by means of faith, then I felt myself revived like a new man and entered at open doors into the very paradise of God. From that time also, I beheld the precious, sacred volume with new eyes. I went over all the Bible and collected a great number of passages which taught me what the work of God was. And as I had previously with all my heart hated the words, justice of God, So from that time, I began to esteem and love them as words most sweet and most consoling. In truth, these words were to me the true gate of paradise. And so, when Luther heard the sermon offering indulgences for complete remission of sins, his heart and his mind were primed to discern truth from error. Luther objected to the fact that the church was offering to sell certificates of forgiveness and that by doing so, it was substituting a false hope that forgiveness can be earned or purchased for the true hope of the gospel that we receive forgiveness by the riches of God's grace alone. He wrote his grievance and he titled it Disputation of Martin Luther on the Power and Efficacy of Indulgences. What a title. He wanted to publicly debate these issues. So, on October 31st, 1517, he nailed them to the door of the church. And these were the 95 theses that kick-started the Protestant Reformation. The 95 Theses contain the seeds of the most important beliefs of the Protestant Reformation, especially the priority of grasping and applying the gospel. Luther longed for the hope and security that only the good news can bring. And he was frustrated with the church using Christ to take advantage of people and prevent them from saving union with God. Luther's focus on the teaching of Scripture is significant since it provided the foundation on which the great doctrines of the Reformation were built. Luther developed a robust notion of justification by faith. We are made righteous by faith. He rejected the notion of purgatory as unbiblical. He argued that indulgences and penance cannot lead to salvation. And perhaps most notably, he rebelled against the authority of the Pope. All of these critiques were driven by Luther's commitment, above all else, to Christ and the scriptures that testify him about him. 
We sang a hymn written by Martin Luther. A mighty fortress is our God. Thank you. And in that second verse, he says, if we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. And so you see how he got there? We don't have the strength. God does the work and gives us the strength. The two central beliefs in the 95 Theses are Scripture is the central religious authority. Do I have a slide that says that? Yeah, there we go. Scripture is the central religious authority. The Bible, not the Pope. He's starting to get the Pope's attention. And then second, salvation is only by faith, not by deeds, not by works. The Pope didn't like having his authority questioned. So Luther was eventually excommunicated from the Catholic Church and the Reformation was begun. And we now summarize the Reformation with the five solas. Sola is Latin for alone. The five solas are scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. I think there's one more, Joby. There we go. In case your Latin is rusty, there it is in English. Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, to God's glory alone, soli Deo gloria. The medieval church had the idea that sin made us dirty, or it made us weak, or it, it wounded us. So their solution was, oh, well, let's make you clean. Let's make you stronger. Let's heal you. Uh, through, through penance or through indulgence. But do you know what the Bible says about us and sin? We're dead. We are dead in our sins. We don't need to be cleaned. We don't need to be made stronger. We don't need to be healed. We need to be raised from the dead. The good news of Christianity is that God has made us alive in Christ and that God is for us 100% forever by God's grace alone, on the basis of Christ alone, received through faith alone so that all things lead to the glory of God alone with scripture alone as the final decisive authority for discerning, teaching, and defending these truths. That's how we differ from the Catholic Church. Remember the medieval view of salvation and that state of grace cycle and all of this mumbo jumbo. Here's what the Reformation, when it looked to Scripture, did for us. Here's our salvation cycle. Again, start at birth. You're born. You're born again. You go to heaven. There's a lot of living and struggling and sanctifying going on in between, but it's by God's grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. We don't pay for our sins because Jesus paid for them all. We don't confess to a priest for absolution because we have a high priest. Jesus himself who intercedes and mediates for us. Now, don't get me wrong. Confession is still vital to the Christian life. Jesus paid our debt. 
canceled our debt, forgave us of all our sins. We don't owe anything because that happened on the cross. Jesus canceled our debt on the cross. For us to enjoy it and exult in it and live in and through and out of it, we confess when we fall short. We live by faith. We say, God, you have forgiven me and I still fail and I'm confessing to you that I still fall short. Help me to live worthy of your calling. I want to look real, three, real quick at Colossians 3 because it sums this up. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died you have died to sin, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Confessing our sin is the agreement with God that we have sinned, and it must be fought. It must be killed. Put it to death. Confession of sin is not the basis of our forgiveness. It is one of the traits that show we are truly in Christ, where all our sins are covered by his blood. The church had strayed. It had become bloated. It had moved far beyond the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. The Protestant Reformation reminds us to check everything against the scriptures. Scripture alone is the final decisive authority. So beg God to reveal to you where you're embracing error in your thinking. Beg God to keep you close to him and close to the scriptures. We looked last night at Josiah's revival and the awakening in Judah. And let's look again at 2 Kings 23 and see the reformation that came about from that revival. Uh, 2 Kings 23 details Josiah's tour around Judah. He destroys idols and high places and he consecrates the temple and he destroys the vessels and the altars to the false gods. He got rid of unfaithful, corrupt priests. And then starting in verse 21, and the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God as it is written in the book of the covenant. For no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel or of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and in Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, according to all the law of Moses. Nor did any like him arise after him. He removed what was evil and he reinstated what was good. He reformed Judah back to where it was supposed to be. Search your heart. Ask God to reveal to you what needs reformed in your life.
Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the reformers and thank you most of all for your word through which they were able to see how the church had strayed. And would you bind the word deep in our heart and help us to live by it, help us to put to death our sin and and live freely as redeemed children of the King. Jesus, thank you for your help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How the church had strayed, and would you bind the word deep in our heart and help us to live by it, help us to put to death our sin, and and live freely as redeemed children of the King. Jesus, thank you for your help. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And now here's the final message from the weekend. It's session three, Pentecost, with Pastor Joel Woodard. You know, we've been reading uh, from the book of Acts, uh, and I'm going to uh, read several passages this morning. I, I do have them on the PowerPoint, so we can, uh, those, those scriptures up there, uh, and it might be a bunch of jumping around, but I'm going to try and summarize a lot of it um, as well. Um, Acts 2, uh, starting in verse 40, uh, and this is, the, this is Pentecost, this is the day of, of Pentecost. And with many other words, he bore witnesses and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teachings, and to the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread and prayer, and all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the, pro- uh, the proceeds to all as, they, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in the homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So that's like the first, that's like the first like, signs of the church. And it's with like lots of power. Uh, as they're coming together, they have all things in common. They know they belong. They don't walk in going, where do I fit in? They know they belong. They, have, like, they know they're cared for. They, they know they're, they're on mission together. It's just beautiful. Uh, and, and probably since that time up until now, we've been wrestling with how do we do this as a church? How do we not hurt people? How, how do we not divide and break up? How do we not put our traditions above what God says? All this whole tension of how to do it. Well, the answer to how we do that, how we live as a worshiping community of Jesus followers, uh, rests in the meaning of this day, Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost, does anyone know what that means? Pentecost? 50... And why do we celebrate Pentecost? And when I grew up, it would be because it's the day the Holy Spirit came down. And I want to tell you, that's only half of the story. 
Uh, what I want to do this morning is I want to tell you two stories from the Old Testament that completely align with two uh, events that happened in the New Testament. And, and I'm even going to put them up here so we can visually see them. I want to walk through because we've linked two of them together that we know very easily. But the, the, but the uh, next two, we don't really know how that works very well. And, and so I want, to, I want to tell you two stories, and you might be very familiar with them, but then we're going to link them to two events in the New Testament. And we'll see, uh, then hopefully you'll see the power uh, of the day of Pentecost uh, in that. The first story I want to tell you, uh, everyone probably, probably knows it, um, but it is the day of Passover, the day of Passover. Um, the Israelites were, uh, is, this, is this beeping for everyone else or just in my ear? Really? You don't hear the tit 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 I don't know what I do wrong. I know. I don't have the Garth connection that Eric does. Okay. Is that better? Okay. So at the beginning I was not moving because I didn't want to crack it. And now it's still kind of, I don't know. I'm awkward. <laughs> I can never be a country singer. Okay. Anyway, if that doesn't bother you, I'm just going to get into it. So uh, the Israelites, through Abraham, they have these sons. They, they're growing in number. Uh, there's a famine. They go down to Egypt. Do you remember this story? They're down in Egypt. They're given this land to live in. They, they're growing and multiplying. It's like two million of them down there, but they're all treated as slaves. It's really hard, and so they cry out to the Lord, we, we want salvation, and God sends this man named Moses as a rescuer, a redeemer for the people to bring them out of slavery and into freedom, to make them a people uh, for his own. Well, ten plagues, he sends them ten plagues, and they go through. The tenth plague is the worst plague. It's the death of the firstborn son. Now, some of the plagues have been brought on both Israelites and the Egyptians. Some of them have just been brought on the Egyptians. But this last, this tenth one, there's something that God asked them to do. Two million people with no email, no texting, no none of that. He tells, he gives them these exact instructions of if you want to see your firstborn son uh, saved, if you want to see him live, you need to follow these exact instructions. But if it was my firstborn son, I would want to know. Tell me those again. Okay, let me write these down. Okay, I have to follow these exactly. And then share them with your neighbor and bring them all in. So it was like the first like viral uh, message news that's going out. Because, hey, there's an angel of death coming that's going to kill your firstborn son. So what you need to do is you need to take a lamb, your most precious lamb. Now remember, these are slaves. So take the thing that you love. Take the thing that really means a lot, that you may not have a lot of, and I want you to take that, and I want you to kill it, and I want you to have like a feast, because I want you to eat the whole thing that night. Can you imagine as a slave, like, a, a, you want us to this feast? Yeah, because the future is, is looking good. I'm bringing you from slavery to freedom. But in order to do that, you need to kill that lamb. Don't boil it. I want you to sacrifice, and I want you to spread the blood over the doorpost. Do you remember, do you remember this story, right? So... So the people that do that, that spread the blood over, the angel of death passes over those houses and they're saved. Finally, Pharaoh goes, okay, get out of here. I want you to just, I want you to leave. And so they are on their way out, receiving all this gold from the Egyptians as they're walking out of slavery in Egypt. But the Lord takes them like south, uh, east, and they end up towards this, this sea, right? Uh, but they're, they're free, 
On that day, they're free. And so the Lord even gives them instructions. On that day, this is, going to be the first, this is going to be the first month of the year for you. We're going to set your whole calendar because of this day. And the day that they were released, I'm even going to tell you which day it is. It's the 14th day of uh, Nisan, the first month of the year. So it would be like January 14th for us. But it's not January 14th. It's like the 4th of July for them. You, th- you got it? It's, the fourth, it's their 4th of July. So when you hear 4th of July, you think, independence, fireworks, we're free, we're no longer under Britain's tyranny, we're all this. That's the 14th day of the first month for them. Nissan 14. Like, Independence Day, we're free. But as they go out, they don't know who they are as a people. God sends them through the Red Sea. They're brought through that, like they're kind of baptized into Moses, and then they go into uh, the wilderness. They're saved. They've been washed with the water, and then they get to uh, the mountain, Mount Sinai. And, And it's there that they get to on the first day of the third month. So you have uh, 16 days from the first month, the 30 days, and then you have 30 days for the second month. How many days is that? 16 plus 30 is 46. They get to the mountain and God says, he talks to Moses on the mountain and says, I want you to prepare the people. I want you to sanctify them because on the third day I'm going to meet with them. So add 3 to, to 46. What's that? 49. And on the 49th day, God appears on this mountain like in fire and lightning, and things are shaking. And on the 49th day, he speaks to them the law. So if you want to look, let's look in Exodus uh, chapter 20. And I just want to read some of this to you. Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, brought you out. I have rescued you. I have redeemed you. I have saved you. 49 days later, they get to Mount Sinai, and here the Lord is speaking to them about, now this is what I want you to be like. This isn't what saves you. This is what identifies you as a people. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of your fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, For the Lord will not hold you guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your sons or your daughters, your male servants or your female servants or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male servants or his female servants or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Here's what kind of people you're to be. 
You're to be a wholehearted, generous, loving, honest people of integrity and generosity and like amazing group of people. This is who I've made you to be. It's, it's a bit like the Passover is our 4th of July, and then when they get to Mount Sinai, it's kind of like our signing of the Constitution, or the Declaration, not the Declaration, it's the Constitution and Bill of Rights, and here's what we're going to be as a people. They get to Mount Sinai, and God gives, God gives them all this on the 49th day, and then uh, from there, the next day, they're to celebrate. We're a people. We know what we're supposed to do. Isn't this amazing? Our God's amazing that he would set it up like this, that we could be a people like this. This is awesome. And so on the 50th day, we're to celebrate the giving of the law. 50th day, celebrate the giving of the law. And somebody said, what's the, what's the term Pentecost mean? Penta means 50. So Pentecost is a celebration of the giving of the law, who we are as a people. But if you've read the story of Exodus, how does that story go? Not good. They, he gives them this. People are like, ah, oh, we don't want to listen to you. Just tell them to Moses and let us know. Uh, and then Moses goes up on the mountain and is receiving these laws. Meanwhile, down below, they're already disobeying the first two commandments. They're building this golden calf. And Moses sees it and goes down. Lord's like, oh, these guys, have ar- they've already broken the community that I've set up, the kind of people that I want them to be. And so he tells the Levites, which is interesting, strap on your swords, go through your neighbors and your friends, and I want you to slay down those who are disobedient. And you know what it says? As the Levites went throughout their uh, bringing this judgment for the disobedience of the law, and it says, and about 3,000 men fell that day. When the law came, death came, because we couldn't do it. But if we could just live all of that, we would be a community that would be, I mean, who, would, who wouldn't want to be it? I mean, it would be like the early church and people just flocking to it because they see the generosity and honesty and integrity and, I mean, just this power that's there. So, so we have the Passover, and then 50 days later we have the celebration of the giving of the law, which, which then turns into a celebration of uh, first fruits. So if you heard that, the celebration of first fruits, uh, they, they give this celebration of first fruits to people that are wandering in the desert for 40 years. That's it. So get this, uh, your first, the first fruits that you receive, these grains that you have, I want you to give them to the Lord, you're going to have a celebration for that. And then they wander in the desert for 40 years going, why do we have this celebration of first fruits? Uh, it's also called the Feast of Weeks, because a week is seven days, and so it was a week of weeks. A week of sevens, or sevens, sevens, 40, 49. But it was the 50th day that you were to celebrate. Uh, so we get Passover lamb, the Exodus. They're saved, they're through the water, they get to the mountain where they're, this is who you are as a, a people. But they have failed it over and over, and the covenant is, they need a new covenant. It's just not, it's not working. Um, so we get to the New Testament, and there are, two, there are two events that happen that are overlaid with the two stories that we've just said, seen in the, in the Old Testament. I mean, exactly overlaid. Uh, you know the, the first one. So rather than, um, rather than a lamb at Passover, we have Jesus come after three years with his disciples. And he comes, and you know what time of year it is? 
Passover. And the meal that he does before uh, he is crucified, he sits down and has a Passover meal with them to explain, this is why I've come. So Jesus gives them the story of Passover to explain his death. His blood, his life would be covered over us if you come underneath this salvation in him. He's saying, uh, I'm exactly lining that up, right? Passover, we understand the crucifixion of Jesus. John the Baptist says, look, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. This one we got pretty well, right? Um. And Jesus is wandering, not wandering, he's around with his disciples, he's fishing, he's having a good time for 40 days. He's, he's with them for 40 days. After, he, after, he's risen from, after he's risen from the dead, he goes to his disciples and he teaches them and has meals with them and walks with them uh, for 40 days. But then he says, uh, I got to go away because there's there's this one person coming, uh, the Holy Spirit. And when I go away, the Holy Spirit will come. He leaves after 40 days, but there's no Holy Spirit, right? They have to wait like a whole other week. And, but he gives them instructions uh, on what to do. He's like, "Hey, I'm leaving. I'm ascending. Uh, but here's here's what I want you to do." In Luke 24, the end of the end of Luke, he's meeting uh, with his disciples after the. The resurrection. Um, and Luke 24, 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, the whole, this whole uh, Hebrew Bible, the whole story, everything written about me must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in the name of all the, to, to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are my witnesses of all these things. And behold, I am sending you the promise of my Father upon you. So I'm sending you the, the Spirit. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. They're to stay in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a high mountain. Uh, spiritually, it's the highest of all mountains. I want, I'm leaving. Stay right here on this mountain for another week because the Spirit's going to come then, uh, come at that point. And you think, now why did the Spirit wait? Did he get lost? No, he didn't get lost. Uh, was he like busy doing other stuff? No, was he like, is it a long trip? This is going to take me a while. But yet, the disciples are sitting around waiting for the 50th day. So when the 50th day came, they're on a mountain, and all of a sudden, these like things of fire come down. You get it? They're, they're, the, the day of Pentecost has been taking place for 1,500 years before this. It's the celebration of the first fruits, the celebration of the giving of the law, the celebration of this identity as a, as a people. Who are we to be as a, as a people uh, for God? So, then we get to Acts. Um, oops, sorry. Then we get to Acts 
um, two, just before that in the chapter. If you have your, does anyone have Bibles? That's fine if you don't. Acts two, and read this, read this, uh, or listen to this carefully again. Two verse one. When the day of Pentecost arrived. So what's the day of Pentecost? It's the giving of the law. It's the first fruits. It's the long-awaited thing. that These are the kind of people we want to be. When that day came, that we have failed over and over and over again. When that day came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly, there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. On that same mountain that they celebrated so long ago, and they said, I want to make you a kingdom of priests. Come up, meet with me, and go out to the world and tell them and show them what kind of people God's people and nation are. Go out and do this. And they failed. They were rescued through the water to the mountain to be a people, and they failed. And so God says, I'm going to make you a new covenant, a new exodus. The Lamb of God comes. There's a new exodus coming, a new salvation coming through Jesus. We get through there, and we wait till the 50th. I mean, it has to be the 50th day. We're waiting for the 50th day. Because where the law came, there was death. But when the Spirit comes, you know what it says? And about 3,000 people were added to their number that day. Where the Spirit comes, there comes life. Where the law comes, there comes death. And it's only through... The Passover, our Passover lamb, that we're saved, we're saved to be a people for God's own glory. So if we want to be a, if we want to be a people, Hollyview, of uh, generosity and kindness and love and grace and truth and mercy, if we want to be all those things, we, we have to live as this Pentecost day is true for us because we can't do it on our own. We, when I, uh, growing up in a Baptist church, we had our Trinity, the uh, Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. You heard that? But the Trinity is the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And if we want to see it be a church that, that lives with power, as God intends us to be, we have to be people of the Spirit. To be listening and walking in the Spirit. Uh, on that mountain, there was fire and thunder and wind and shaking. On this mountain, there was, there was fire, which represents God's presence. And there was fire in, in the form of like these tongues. So it's God's presence represented on, on our witness and our speaking. And it wasn't just, it wasn't just Hebrew like, or Aramaic. Like, it wasn't just for them. It was tongues for everyone. It, it was this mission that God gave the church. I want to be my witnesses through everywhere, through Boring and Gresham and Sandy and Happy Valley. I want, you, I want you to be witnesses everywhere for me by the power of the Holy Spirit. That makes Pentecost pretty cool, huh? I mean, I think it's pretty cool. Um, there, I want to read one more verse from Hebrews 12. Uh, the writer of Hebrews, I love the book of Hebrews because what Hebrews does so much is it compares this with, with this. Now, um, so this is the, as the writer of Hebrews is looking back on these stories and comparing Hebrew Bible, Old Testament with New Testament, he says this, For you have not come to what may be touched, 
to what may be touched, a blazing of fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made, people, uh, made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I trembled with fear. So this, is, you, this, is, this, isn't, this isn't, you can't do it on your own. You cannot be a people of God on your own. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And to the assembly, the congregation, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of, of Abel. Uh, you haven't come to this mountain to do it on your own. You've come to this mountain, the spirit born in you alive. Uh, you know, I think um, when I was a kid in middle school, we went to, and before that, I went to a church called Grand Avenue Baptist Church in Fairborn, Ohio. It was a small little Baptist church that shaped who I am. Uh, Randy Tate was the pastor, and his wife was Janet, and they have two boys and a girl that we played baseball with after service in the field uh, next door. I remember uh, going over to their house. I remember Randy, the pastor, uh, speaking with my dad and encouraging my dad. I remember the Paulings, who had three boys, the same age as us three boys, Greg, Eric, and Andy, all the same age. We went over to their house every, almost, it feels like every day after church on Sunday. They had a big field, and we had just a ton of fun. They gave us a lot of things and, and helped shape us. Uh, the Farrens, who I've talked about before, the Farrens impact our marriage because they're an older couple that invited us over to their house. Uh, and we were four kids in their house, and the Farrens would always kiss after they prayed for meals. Uh, and I don't know if, you are, if you've seen Amy and I do that. We've done that since, but that's from the Farrens. Like, when I was a little kid in church, the, the Farrens, Greg Durker was my youth pastor. Greg Durker loved soccer and took us on a boat for the first time. Uh, Ed Bellman was a kid in youth group that was a little bit awkward and weird. Uh, there was uh, Denise Proudfoot and her family. She was a couple years older than me, and uh, she was like in high school group, and I was in junior high, and I thought, wow, she was really cool. Uh, those, this is like, I don't know how many years later, those people shaped me because those people had the spirit in them and lived like a community of Jesus followers together did life together, encouraged each other, uh, prayed together, we studied God's word together. And, and that kind of community that's power, empowered by the Spirit is a powerful thing that God can use. And that's why Pentecost means so much to me. Because it can make us a people after God's own heart. So we can actually be generous and not just pretend to be. And be kind and be merciful and be truthful with each other. It's like authentic community because of the power of the Spirit. Um, so I'm going to invite Caleb to come up. And we're going to do, uh, you just maybe just play a little bit of music, and then by the, when we're all done, you can, uh, we'll sing a song together. Are you ready for that? Yeah, great. Um, there are candles 
and there's three candles over there. And, and what I'm just going to ask you to do, um, candles or fire on Pentecost is just a representative. And it actually represents where there's fire was in the Old Testament. It represented God's presence. Uh, so it's symbolic, but it's also very powerful. Uh, now, there's three candles here, but as we go up, just light a tea light candle and just take it with you to your seat. And just know, even as you feel the warmth and you see the different lights, know this represents the Spirit of God in each of us as we go out from here. So we've gone back in time, but now we have to go back to the future uh, as we go back to uh, our homes and even the rides, homes and all that stuff, and to just remember that we are a people of the Spirit. Let me, let me pray. Uh, and then you can just go to one of those things, light a tea light candle, just uh, hold it, and then we'll sing one more song, and then I'll pray, and we'll close it out, okay? Let me pray one more time. Lord, thank you so much for uh, your word, and Lord, the patience that you have with us and the graciousness, Lord, to help us even understand your story, that, you, that the Spirit waited patiently um, from the time you ascended to the time that he should... Uh, descend and fill people's hearts and give them power to be their witnesses and be a community as you design, not by their own strength or power or doing, but by the power of the Spirit in them. And so, Lord, I pray that as we come to that mountain, that you would make us a people um, after you, Lord. That people would know it, that you would add people to our numbers uh, for healing and restoration and forgiveness, that we would be a people that when people uh, come around, uh, all of us, that they would say, man, the Spirit is at work in them, changing them, moving them, uh, and drawing us to yourself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this message from Hollyview Church. We invite you to join us in person for our worship service every Sunday morning at 1030. You can find us on Southeast 257th Avenue, just off of Highway 212 between Boring and Damascus, Oregon. Or find us online at hollyviewchurch.com. Together, we are being shaped by the gospel, rooted in God's word, to share God's grace and truth. Again, whether online or in person, thank you for joining us here at Hollyview Church. Church.